Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to episode 15 of the Practical Futurist Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the self-described rough diamond, Nicole Yershin. When Nicole joined Ogilvy in 2000, she was given the simple brief of bringing the agency into the 21st century. Big ask. She achieved this by building relationships with third-party suppliers and embracing new technologies that saw Ogilvy digitise some 10,000 tapes of adverts dating back to the 1950s. She later went on to be the founding partner of Ogilvy's London Digital Innovation Lab, the dedicated innovation unit of Ogilvy and made the group, where she worked with brands such as Amex, IBM, BP, Selfridges, Unilever, BA and Weatherspoons. She's also famous for her black book of leading suppliers. In 2016, she founded the NY Collective with a mind to remove the traditionally opaque practices of consulting and marketing agencies. Welcome, Nicole. Hello. Wow, that's an introduction. Thank you. You've done a lot of stuff. I have. I've been around. We've known each other for more than 10 years, probably even 11 or 12. I think in around 2008, I was at Mobile Advertising Pioneer Gigaphone, and you kindly invited me to install a permanent demonstration of the technology in your lab. So thanks for that. But since 2016, since you left Ogle, you've not stood still. Best-selling book, Rough Diamond, conferences, speaking, consulting, mentoring, now your own collective. How do you fit it all in? I'm used to spinning many, many plates. So that also is Also, you're just, a woman and you can multitask where we yeah, can't. Yeah, I'm just... It started with my role years and years ago at Goldwyn East Trot. I, I was running traffic, their traffic department. So mm. if people don't know what traffic department means, it basically is progress control. You make things happen. Don't let things crash. Yeah, you get things done on time. The right people see it. doesn't go over budget. Yep. Make things happen. So I have experience of being able to do that and also the art of delegation. Oh, yes. Very important to us. But your book, Rough Diamond, is all about turning disruption into an advantage in business and life. Mm. So if I was to hold you to three things that people should take away from the book, what would they be? Test and learn. Mm -hmm. So you don't know unless you've tried it. So you can't have an opinion to say, oh, that won't work unless you've tried it. Mm. So test and learn. Sometimes no doesn't always mean no. So when I set up the Rough Diamond scheme at Ogilvy, I was told no, did it anyway for two years under the radar until it was... Because when you're innovating, you're doing something new, you can't put it into a PowerPoint presentation. No. You can't really explain it very well for someone to sign it off. So you just have to go with your gut, you know, a bit of intuition. And, and I was really lucky because there were some great people at Ogilvy who gave me enough rope to be a maverick. Yeah, so I would say don't necessarily always accept no. And third piece of advice is bring people with you on the journey who want to go with you on the journey. Mm. So the ones that just do not want it, don't try and make them. Don't be banging your head against a brick wall and and getting frustrated. They're just not your tribe. So go, you know, seeking out your tribe and, and you'll get things done a lot quicker. I talk about tribes a lot and often I'm in a group of C-suite executives and they are all nodding in agreement about what I'm telling them they should be doing. Mm. And I say, that's great. You're going to have your young leaders, your millennials who will expect that you'll do that. And they said, Andrew, so so what's the problem? Why can't we change? And I said, you've missed a group there. Mm. You've got the prayers, the stayers 
and the players. <laughs> and those prayers and stayers are in middle management. But as mm. you've just said, sometimes they can't come along. So for disruptors have to realise you've got some resistance. But mm. how do you change a whole company if you've got a whole layer that doesn't want to move? Well, I, I did it within the the innovation labs quite simply with initially I, I had lab rats. Mm-hmm. So and they were people that were interested in the kind of stuff that we were doing. That's why they would stay within the agency because we were doing interesting stuff. So every time I did a semester of learning, so say, you know, I'd, I'd do a semester on gaming or mobile or social or behavior change or big data, I would say, I'd send a note out to all of the group because I worked for the group, so that was about 2,000 people, and I would say, who is interested in big data? And then there'd be loads of people that would put their hands up, maybe 20 different people, then I'd, and all different ages and all different wants and experiences. And then I would say, get it agreed with their line managers to spend some time with me for the six months when we did the big data semester. And so therefore, they would want to learn. It would be over and above their day Mm. job. I didn't pay them because they were being paid for their day job, but they were doing something as well as that was going to add to their day job. And also they were teaching their clients and teaching the people within their groups interesting things that they'd learned. And I'd send them to events, you know, I'd send them to South By or wherever I could send them that had big data, Mm. I would say to whoever it was, okay, who wants in to go to Amsterdam or IBC or wherever? And they would put their hands up. I said, okay, so your job is to find out as many interesting things as you can and then bring all that learning back. So for me, it was it was about finding what buttons to press that they really were interested in and then bringing them on the journey with me. So those listening on the podcast in a learning and development function are going to say, this just sounds like training. But it's so much more because it's not just about the curriculum, it's about the passion. It's about people almost thumping the desk and saying, Nicole, I want to be on this course. Mm. Did you have that sort of groundswell where there's more and more people looked over the parapet and said, oh, Debbie's just done a big data course and she's really, you know, the clients love her. Did you have people almost banging the door down to say, I want to be on this course? I did, but it was always to do with what their love was. Mm. So when there was a gaming one. Um, there was a big kind of groundswell of people saying, I'm in, I want to I want to be part of this. When there was a behaviour change one, there were quite a few people, uh, a big groundswell. And, and I think they had the want first and then they saw what uh, what it was like working with me because I don't micromanage. Yeah. And there well, was... Well, I didn't report to you, so you couldn't. Exactly. So I was just really pleased with the help mm. and we just all got on like a, a, a non-hierarchical team. So therefore, if that was, you know, we were, I would... Ha- had very clearly defined objectives because the the semesters were quite rigid and formulaic and they would change every six months. So we'd had to see who was out there, which is why the Black Book is so important of seeing 10 to 15 different companies every single week on behaviour change. I would also, with behaviour change, we put a few people on Dan Ariely's course, Beginner's Guide to Irrational Behaviour. It Mm -hmm. was free. It was amazing. And we all learned so much from it and we were all doing it together, maybe six of us. And then we would we would then implement something. So we did we won an award for the power of cute, which was um, putting babies' faces on shutters in Woolwich. And then we were uh, babies within the community. And then we were able to test. You know, did behaviour did it change behaviour in that street? 
did people feel more peaceful because of the mm. baby's faces? So that came as a direct result of within the semester, we see who is out there, we attach it to business, we implement something. So there's something tangible that we can then put forward for awards or whatever their measure of success is. And then we would have a lab day for 500 people. It would always be at Ravensbourne. And that would kind of close down the semester where we would pull up all of our learnings. And those people who had been part of the semester that I didn't employ but were interested were all part of the lab day. And so therefore they then got the most amazing experiences that they ordinarily wouldn't have got. Their normal experiences were contact reports or client mm. meetings or it was very much enjoying the doing and, and putting on an event for 500 people. They were part of that and everything that goes with it. So you've been doing this for more than a decade. Mm. Are you seeing other companies that are taking that model and, and helping be disruptive inside organisations or is it still the status quo for many companies? Still status quo for many companies. Why? I know. That's what I ask myself every bloody day. Actually, my position, I was paid to do what I did. Mm. And when I came away from Ogilvy and I went on interviews and there were many people that said, you know, we really want you to work with us. We really need a head of innovation. And then I'd start to talk to them about what I would need to do. And they said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. They'll rock the boat. We just don't want to do it. They yeah. didn't really understand it, hadn't really had it before. Yeah. So therefore, you've still got people still doing the same job. Mm. Whereas that was my job. They put their money in their pockets and they employed me to do what I felt was right because I don't know. There was a paragraph in, I think, Yuval Harari's 21st Century 21 Lessons. And I think he says, if you want to know what's happening, don't ask the adults. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. We don't. Yeah. So we have to constantly be out there and testing and learning. But that is not attached to a day job. It's a separate function mm. of R&D that they need to find the money, at least for a salary. It's almost the role of a chief disruptor. And, and I think we're kindred spirits. And the, the topic of this uh, podcast is disruptive thinking. Someone asked me once, when did you know you were a disruptor? And I'll ask you the same question in a minute. It was when I was in, I think, grade five. Mm. And we had the classroom laid out that you would sit at double desks. Mm. I was deemed to be too disruptive for the rest of the class. So I had to sit next to the teacher. The benefit was, though, I got to leave the classroom first when the bell rang. If I look back, I know I've been a disruptor in many ways all my life. Mm. When did you realise you were a disruptor? When I questioned the, the status quo, when it didn't make sense to me, I wasn't being annoying for annoying sake. I just didn't get it. So if you could explain it to me, but what I didn't want was someone saying, sit down and shut up and mm. I don't want to hear from you in eight hours. And it was the same within organisations. I'm very lucky that the two initial jobs that I had before Ogilvy, everyone was like me. <laughs> well, that could be very scary also. Yeah, it was working with Dave Trot. So oh, therefore, of course. Well, Dave's a disruptor. Yes. So the, And then Simon's Palmer. So uh, it, it was, for me, very, I thought I was normal. <laughs> and then I went to Ogilvy and I stood out like a sore thumb. Mm. They would have meeting after meetings and I wouldn't get anything out of them. And I'd turn up and no one else was there or they'd be half an hour late. And I just think, this isn't right. I wouldn't do that to you. Why would you do that yeah, to me? Yeah. And I, so I therefore just questioned things that just it questioned my value systems, I suppose. Well, I lasted four years at IBM and, and most of the disruptors that went there then aren't there anymore. That's not a negative thing in IBM, but that particular environment doesn't really absorb disruptors. So there is a, a pattern and a program to follow and this is the, the way things get done. Yeah, I think you're right. And I've had the same experience. You go to traditional companies for an interview. Mm. They don't know what to do with you yeah. because they're like, we don't know where we'd put you because we've got to put you in a box. 
we know that you could be amazing and do stuff, but we can't measure it. So how are we going to pay you? I think also it scares them that you're going to disrupt everyone else (laughs) and it's going to be anarchy. But I was very lucky in 2000, the person that employed me knew me from Simon's Palmer, knew me from Gold Greenish Trot. I'd never done a CV, but I did have a reputation for getting shit done. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But I really did. And therefore, it didn't matter what it was. It didn't have to be in advertising. That's why now, I mean, I haven't really worked in marketing or advertising for the last three years. I'm working directly with clients. I'm working with Danone and their future supply chain for infants, baby nutrition, and you know how's their supply chain going to look? It's it's things that where I can deliver upon something. It doesn't matter what it is, but I know that I can get it done. And how do they measure your success? Or are you just on a flat fee and they just know that you're brilliant? Or how does it work? There's some things that are just um, like working with London Business School and doing workshops or meetings, and then I'm I'm measured on that yeah. and turning up <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah, yeah. and there'll be other things that are project based that will go on for five or six months say with go compare when they were launching we flip or i could be doing workshops with great western railways where they'll say to me what's the future of ticketing and i'll turn up there and i'll do the future of payments mm, mm. <laughs> so that's disruptive in itself they yeah. think that they're going to learn one thing and i turn up and do something totally different and I think it was a stop and learn session and or stop and think. And I think it's the first time they've actually stopped to think. <laughs> you know, I'm not looking to solve the wrong problem really well. I don't have a business model like mm. the agencies do or mm. consultants do to keep large salaries in the building and, and pay lots of people and pay a big building. You know, it's it's me. And so therefore, I'm very quick at working out what the problem is and I get the right people in to to try and fix it with the right solution but I'll find out so when I was working with Danone and they wanted me to put on a a day for their 70 supply chain leaders from around the world literally from cow to consumer Mm. I'd said to them are you working with anyone else doing the kind of thing I'm going to start looking at all these different companies who are doing interesting things that will impact on your marketplace So they said, oh, no, we're not. So I said, really? Why don't you just go and audit your own company for five minutes and come back to me after a day or two and just let me know what you've found out? So they came back and he said, oh, my God, you're you're worth your money before you've even started just by asking the right question. He said, I've found out that there's a head of innovation in Paris and also found out that the worldwide IT people are working with Accenture and they're working with three blockchain companies. I went, excellent, now we can use them. Mm -hmm. So rather than me going to find loads of companies, introducing to them, getting that another pathway started, there's no point. Yeah. So it's just it's just by asking the simple questions. But again, stopping and thinking. They, didn't, yeah. they weren't stopping. Yeah. Someone pulled me up the day at a conference. He said, it was one of those Slido questions, so I don't know who it was. They said, disruption is such a negative term. Yeah. And they wanted me to defend that. He said, has disruption been good for consumers? And I love Q&A. You're probably the same because you can't prepare for it. Mm. And I wasn't mic'd up. So I just walked into the room and I, I yelled with a large voice. I said, yes, you're right. Disruption is a negative term makes you sit up and think. And I gave the example, and as we record yesterday, Uber lost their license again. I said, but, but they're if, still practicing. Correct. But if it wasn't for disruption, black cabs would not take credit cards. Mm. I've lived in London long enough to wait for four or five cabs that had a credit I card know. machine in the wet only because other companies like Uber and others came in and disrupted the market. Yes. Did it force them to do it? And the guy went, you're right. <laughs> so if we agree that disruptive is a negative term, Shouldn't we just embrace that it's it's going to shake things up? You and I will. Our tribe will. Mm. But there will be many people that aren't measured 
to have things shaken up. And if they've got to do their, like I know, for instance, the woman that got rid of the labs, the innovation labs, everyone was like, are you mad? Like, what on earth? But from her point of view, she's a CEO spreadsheet manager. Mm -hmm. She's looking at the spreadsheet. She's looking at one cost and she's thinking, I can do without that. And she's not thinking of all the positives that came out of it. So she's never going to be that visionary, that Mm. leader. Mm. She's a manager. So in her eyes, she's doing the right thing. So I am a cost that she that she can't see the value of. And unless you're working with people that can see that value, you're not going to get anywhere. So that's why you have to find people who can absolutely see the value. I mean, I was I was talking about that a good example the last week where this School Communication Arts and Mark Lewis was talking about reciprocity and the fact that he was standing up there in front of many people at this lunch and he was talking about School Comms Arts. And he wasn't just asking for money for future scholars. He did an amazing presentation. But what he did was they developed 12 different posters and on each poster there's an emergency button on it <laughs> like a, that's connected to an internet yeah. of things. And when you are desperate for creative ideas, you hit that emergency button and you get 40 brains from the school that will give you immediate access to campaigns and for £1,500. Wow. So I thought, that's bloody brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So I was the first to put my hand up. I was the first to buy a poster. And and for me, I've got in my back pocket a possibility of 40 different people working on a campaign for me. Wow. Literally overnight or over 48 hours. It's almost break glass for campaign ideas. Exactly. Now, I see that as value. There might be other people that were there that might come along with me because I put my hand up and might feel Mm. that they should. But maybe some of them there don't value it. And that's also fine. But until you find people that do value what you do, um, you're not really going to get anywhere fast. Is it a generational thing? So the person you spoke about is probably Gen X. I'm Gen X. I'm a 60s child. I think I keep talking about the young leaders. I'm loath to call them millennials. Let's call them young leaders. Mm. When they are in positions of authority and they're the ones deciding whether we hire Nicole or Andrew, Mm. they're just going to go, well, of course we need someone like you. So is it generational? Do we have to wait another five years before management teams are full of young leaders rather than old leaders? I think, again, we'll go back to how they're measured. Mm. And if their measure of success is always purely on a bottom line, um, financial, it might be that they don't want people like us to disrupt something that at the moment they're still getting the money in. But we know that it's not going to stay like that. Mm -hmm. So only when they're literally on a burning platform will something be done. So can disruptors be made or are they born? I think a little bit of both. I know that from experience because I have a boy and a girl Mm -hmm. and they're 24 and 22. And my girl, um, Claudia, was amazing at school, A-star student all the way through. They didn't even see me at the school. They didn't even know what I looked like. (laughs) Then Max joins. Yes. And I'm literally in there every minute. Because he's in trouble? Because he's in trouble, because he's a naughty boy, because Mm. he won't sit down and shut up for eight hours, because he's questioning things. And I get... Where does he get that from? uh, Who knows? (laughs) But I get then the feeling that he's going... uh, Well, I'm literally told he's going to be expelled pretty much every month or so. So I get very heavy with the school, you know, and I'm sending them Sir Ken Robinson posts and and Seth Godin posts and God knows what else. I turn the the headmaster around and I um, I say, you're not going to mess up my kid just because he doesn't go through the cookie cutter factory that that, That that, they have set up. Yes. And that my daughter quite happily is going through. Mm, mm. 
But what's strange is, so it turns out well for Max and he's deputy head boy and then goes to university and gets a first at university and Claudia gets a first. And anyway, it turns out really well. He now is in a job that is a nine to five. Claudia came out of university, did the graduate trainee schemes. I thought she would just be a good girl and she'll just do as she's told. And the minute she went into proper work she was like what on earth is that why are they telling me to do such stupid (laughs) things they're micromanaging me they're changing and to the takes me a week to get an email out and she was so massively frustrated she's now running her own company yeah so that's not what i thought (laughs) would happen so i kind of felt max was born a disruptive and claudia was a good girl and now it's turned around she's become one she just won't accept stupidness I guess for want of another word mm. uh, that, that's how it's done and that's how it's always done and she was like well I, I don't agree you can't give me a good enough reason so she started to get her voice and because me being the mother that I am I allow her that voice and I don't think, say things like oh don't say anything don't walk the boat don't get into trouble I'll just um, make sure she is happy and she's she's doing it for the right reasons. We talk a lot, and you talk in the book as well and publicly about entrepreneurship, being an entrepreneur inside an organisation. Yeah. Do you think entrepreneurs can become entrepreneurs and vice versa? And maybe the entrepreneur is just another another name for a disruptor. I really think if you've got management who have a very clear vision and who allow you to have a vision and, and make things happen, then I think you can be an entrepreneurial spirit within a large company and you harness the other entrepreneurs. You can see mm. them. Yeah. Um, they're very easy to spot and you give them a voice and you bring them out. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. I was allowed to do it for 16 years. It, it's really good. When you're being hauled over the coals every five minutes and, and you're really, you know, senior management Middle management will never quite like what you're doing because I think they'll feel a little bit jealous as well. Yeah, how like, come why, she's having all the fun? Yeah, like, why is she going off to yeah. South By or without understanding? Actually, it's bloody hard work. It's work, yeah. You are on the go unless you're asleep. Mm-hmm. And even in the evenings, you've done a full day, you're yeah. then having to network and it's really exhausting and you have to be on and be alive and be sharp. And be representing the brand. You've, yes. got, you've got to be on your game because if you're there representing Ogilvy or IBM, people are seeing you as the brand. Yes. It's not all glamour, but I guess compared to their day job. Yeah, pushing it, a spreadsheet. It, pushing a spreadsheet yeah. that maybe they don't want to do. But I would say to them, that's why I would do the semesters. I would say, well, if you're interested in any of these things, come come with us. Mm. You go to that event. I don't have to go to all these events. If that's your love, you do it. In the intro, I mentioned the black book. I think I'm in the black book. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, tell me about how it came about and how important it is and, and why others should have one. Yeah, I really wanted um, Ogilvy to understand the importance of collaborating and new kinds of partnerships because the traditional ad agency, which I came from, so I know, had loads of partnerships but with print, illustrators, photographers, film people. And that was pretty much mm. it. It's a supplier it, directory. Yeah. Then what happened, you've got gaming and mobile and social and AR and VR and big data and 3D printing. And mm. I could go on and on and on and on. And no one knew how to get any of those things done or who was good or who was best in breed yeah, yeah. or who was doing it in what country. So the semesters of learning were key in me wanting Ogilvy to be agents because that's what an agency is. They're agents. 
But the problem was their business model. They couldn't see how they could make money with doing all these different things that came out of my semester. Of course, it gave them awards because we were doing some beautiful things. I mean, do you remember the IBM, the AR thing that came out before even Leia would open their doors? Yeah, I used it at Wimbledon in 2009. I actually, I was a very entrepreneurial blogger. I contacted, I think probably you or someone who said, can I get a free ticket to go to the the match and follow them around and see the the VR thing? And I did. It was great. So all of those kind of things were done to allow Ogilvy to have a different business model to then offer not just TV and print, but AR and VR and all the things that came out of a semester, we would see 10 to 15 different companies every single week. We would then attach it to business. Someone had a problem. We would then attach it to the right solution because we'd found the right partners. Did we know if it worked? No, we didn't. Had it been done before? No, it hadn't. So we were pioneering all of these new technologies and bringing them to people and making it easier for people to engage with them. And we would then win tons of awards. And now it's, I mean, I'm talking 10, 15 years ago doing these things. Now it is commonplace. But Ogilvy didn't know how to make money doing those things. They saw it as little bitty things on the side. Their traditional model is selling a TV ad. Mm. Which is very profitable. Which is how they get to, you know, make money for the shareholders. So for me, when I first started out on that black book or collaborating, it was purely so that the agencies could be agents Mm. in the truest sense and not just have to meet with photographers and illustrators and know the best in breed, but know the best in breed with everyone around the world. And I would get friendly with the embassies. Remember, we I think we last saw each other at the Finnish embassy. Yes, that's right. So I would get friendly with the embassies and and the Israeli embassy and British embassy and London and partners and Italians and the, the Canadian High Commission. And I would say, who do you, if I was doing a semester on big data, I would say, who do you have in your countries who are doing interesting things on data, AI, machine learning? They would then send them over to me when they were coming to London. Mm. So therefore, I wouldn't even need to necessarily go to them. Perfect. Yeah. So often people ask me, and they probably ask you, you what industries are ripe for disruption? I'm going to turn it around. Which industries can handle a disruptor on the books? I don't think it's industry sector specific. Mm. I think it's the leadership. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So any industry? Any industry. And I'll tell you why that makes a difference. There was an event that I was curating for like 500 people last year. Yeah, and I kept... um, saying that there was someone that I knew who was a professor at INSEAD and had worked with the most unbelievable names from L'Oreal and Nike and Adidas and Tatao and unbelievable uh, reputation. But because she didn't have a name behind her, because she wasn't so-and-so from IBM, they didn't want her there. Yet she was the one teaching them. And that really annoyed me that you wouldn't have the teacher because they didn't have the name name. by their name. Yeah. yeah. The disruptor, but not not a known one. Yes. Wow. And so, therefore, they were selling their tickets to get bums on seats. We're saying with we've got someone from yeah. IBM. Yep. Oh, whoopee. Mm, I mm. know someone who teaches those people from IBM in the likes of INSEAD. But it's about the tribes feeling comfortable. So if you see the logo, then it must be okay. It's social proof. So yeah. on my Twitter page, I have me standing in front of a big wall that says DHL. I've done that deliberately. It's social proof because they... 
uh, hopefully a, a new client will go, well, if DHL thought he was good, then he must be okay. Yeah. So I think we use that. But as you and I know, I could have a blank wall there and still be just as inspiring, I would hope. Yeah. Well, because we are, we, um, we have experience mm. and we have wisdom and we know the truth and we have strong values and we're honest and open hearted. And that's when you do the best business. Yeah. Uh, it's real. It's people real. It's authentic. It. Yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes people find that level of honesty quite scary. Yeah. I, I actually remember when I was selling social listening tools, I was selling into ITV. Back then, this is probably 10, 15 years ago, mm. there someone had a spreadsheet of all the tools, all the things they couldn't, couldn't do. And they asked me, how good is your sentiment analysis? And I said, it's as bad as everyone else's. And they stepped, stepped back and went, why are you being so honest? because you're going to find out soon in later. Yes. And actually, I spun their spreadsheet around. I said, look, I can help you here. Take my vendor hat off. I'll tell you which ones are good or bad. Yeah. Here are the top six, including us. Yeah. You make a decision. Guess who got the business? Yeah. And they said, because you were honest. We could see that your integrity was there. Mm. Even though your product had a flaw, wasn't as good as everyone else's, we knew that you could make up for it. So I think honesty in business, it isn't about disrupting. It's just about being honest. Yeah. And I think that what's happening right now, because technology means that you can work from anywhere, mm. because technology means you can have your own email, you can have your own website, you can have your own connections, you've got access to a black book even with your LinkedIn. It means that uh, if you meet someone who happens to be a client on holiday, you can do work with them. You know, did I think that I would be doing work with Danone uh, necessarily and and jump through those kind of hoops? No, I didn't. Mm. But it just shows you that times are changing and you don't need the bigness anymore because I'm able to work a leveraged business model. So whatever the problem is, whatever the problem is, I know the right people within my book to execute and to make things happen. Once we've worked out what the problem is... (laughs) Leads me nicely into my final question about your collective, the NY Collective. What is it and why? It's a good play on NYC, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Because people automatically think New New York, York uh, but they're my initials. So I'm very lucky. Thanks, Mum and Dad, for that. But the collective is literally the black book of who I've met over the years and depending on what the problem is find the right person with the right solution I'm always being asked do you know someone to do this and someone to do that and I could spend 24 hours a day answering that I can't do that as much anymore because I'm I'm a lone ranger. But you want to monetize it because there's value in that. Yeah. That um, the fact you've pounded the pavement and met these people and you've qualified them. So I do. rather than build blogs, it's Terry Smith and he's fantastic in this in this yeah. area. Yeah, I do have a referral fee, but it's all very open and very transparent. Mm. So that someone, if someone's come onto my website, which they have a couple of times, and said I really need help with X, and I've found the right person, then they don't pay me the client but if the person gets the job then I'm on there as a, a well, line item why not? Yeah. and and I say to them you pay me what you think that was yeah, worth yeah. so some jobs have been 5% some jobs have been 15% but that's been a really nice way now not everyone likes um, they feel that that's not a good way to get money in. Mm. But if you're transparent, yeah. of you wouldn't have known who to go to and had I back, not been there. They'll come back for another suggestion because they'll go that was that worked out really well. Yeah, I am a super connector. Yeah, that's maybe my power. Where I just I could be speaking to someone and I'll know. Oh my god, you really need to meet this person, and then they'll end up doing incredible business together. I've been doing that literally my whole working life. It it feels good to connect people. Will people buy from people? I don't think that'll ever change. Yeah. 
Final question, is this the Practical Futurist podcast? What three things can our listeners be doing to be more or better disruptive thinkers next week? Be curious. Mm. Don't let a day go by where you're you're not finding interesting information somewhere. Just be curious. Get out of your comfort zone. So I always go to places where I know no one and nothing. Me too. I love it. You meet some fantastic people. Amazing people. You have great conversations. So when everyone was at Web Summit, I was at House of Beautiful Business. Mm. And the reason that works for me, no one's there with a lanyard. You have no idea. So you have to go in cold and say, you know, who are you? And I'm Nicole. And I'm very uncomfortable. You know, even for people who are extroverts, it's it's just as uncomfortable for extroverts as it is for introverts. But try and get out of your comfort zone because you'll learn something you didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious. Get out of your comfort zone. Try and stay honest and authentic because otherwise people like us will see right through you. And we can't do work with people like it's almost kind of I know that you know that I know (laughs) something not quite right going on there. So that's why people do fear working with us, because when I was asked, you know, to go onto the board, I don't want to go on the board of a company. I don't want to go up those ranks. People like us have other things that we want and need and not necessarily get to the top of that mountain and then think, I don't like it up here. Because they're all not like me. It's not what I really wanted. So I think to be authentic with yourself, to know what you really, really want, is it to be on the board of a company and work your backside off? Uh, Maybe not. And that's okay. There are other things that you can be doing that don't need for you to follow that formula. So how can people find out more about you and your work? Thank goodness for my name because there's only one Nicole Yershon. So I'm everything, LinkedIn, Twitter, Insta, website, all my name. So quite an easy one. If ever you get in trouble, it's going to be very easy to find you. That's why I'm always honest. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much. I don't know why it's taken us 10 plus years on the podcast. I'd love to have you come back at some stage and, sure. and, and disrupt some other thing that we're talking about. But thank yeah. you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.